I want to welcome you, uh, like Nick said earlier. I'm walking in this morning with the rain. I was just reminded of what that same water has done in different parts um, of the globe this week. And that uh, before we jump into the message, I know that uh, we have such a diverse group of people here at Encounter and that some of your loved ones have been affected uh, by the weather and that even if there wasn't anyone affected by the weather correct, directly in this room, it's still people and we believe that every person matters to God. And, and so that there have been uh, thousands that, whose lives have been affected, hundreds who've lost their life um, because a little bit of rain um, is okay, but a lot of rain in the midst of wind and the kind of torrential downpours and the sea walls and all the craziness has affected a lot of people this week. And so we just want to ask God to bless um, because we know that when storms hit, like even in life, it's not just the storm, it's the aftermath. That uh, there will be more people suffering in the aftermath of the storm that even than just those who are affected. And that there are some really special peoples and special nations in the Caribbean who are going to spend months, if not years, trying to dig out of uh, what one storm brought in the matter of 24 hours. So we're going to pray for them and then just pray for the fact that some of us walked in with storms in our own lives. And that uh, we believe that there is a God who um, looks over them and looks over us and desires to comfort us and desires to sustain us and to carry us through those, those dark moments in life. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we just recognize that this week in uh, parts of the world that uh, have directly and indirectly affected us, that there have been storms and that uh, people have lost their lives. Thousands of people have been displaced and who've lost property and lost all their possessions. And, um, and that as the sun rose this morning, they're in a place of despair hopelessness and uh, we pray for them uh, we don't have to know their name we don't have to even recognize their face because we know you do and I pray that you would hear uh, from this community today uh, us crying out to you for you to sustain them for you uh, to give them the things that they need that you would uh, bring healing to the sickness and repair to the broken God, that you would raise up um, humanitarian aid, that you would raise up the church to make a difference in those communities, in those regions where a disaster has struck. And Father, we recognize that we live in a broken world and that there are uh, daily in our lives constant reminders that we do not have control and that storms are the perfect example that sometimes we're just at the whim of whatever's happening to us. And we're grateful that you desire not so much to always step in and change our circumstances, but that you're a God who is able to change us in the midst of our circumstances. And so I pray that through this morning, through the teaching, through your encouragement, that you would help us to, to place things in our lives so that even in the midst of tragic or terrible circumstances or terrific circumstances that we would uh, be changed to become more like you in the way we love and the way we serve and the way we uh, lead those closest to us to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets in your name jesus i pray amen you can have a seat That, that, that bumper gets me every time. Like, I, I know it's coming, and then I hear the crash. And we're in a series called Guardrails, and that bumper really does kind of capture uh, this idea of guardrails. And uh, we started last week looking at what does it look like to put things in our lives that uh, direct us and protect us. That all of us have been in a place where we've stepped into a circumstance, and because we didn't have, uh, we weren't listening to the internal voice, or, and we didn't have these external choices and boundaries, that we kind of arrive at a place in life that's a collision and that we walk away and we're disoriented because there's been choices that have been made and there's been voices that have been ignored and we're kind of living in the aftermath of our own personal disaster. And throughout the month of October, this series called Guardrails is about putting things into our life 
uh, becoming sensitive to the internal voice that tells us, ah, that's a bad decision, and also being conscious about putting external choices and boundaries around our lives so that we can actually live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. And this week I was reminded of the importance of guardrails in my own personal life because um, last Sunday, immediately following the message, I kind of set out and um, had to catch a flight and was doing a multi-city kind of tour meetings and that took me to Texas and to California. Um, and all through the journey, um, I told you a couple weeks ago about my uranium that I ordered, and um, you can watch that message because I don't have time to get into that, but I'm pretty much convinced at this point I am, in fact, on some type of terror watch list based on how TSA has been treating me this week. But in the midst of all of that, I kept getting delayed. Um, I spent multiple nights uh, in the hotel, I mean, uh, in hotels because of the airlines having to put me up because I wasn't making my planes. I had a plane leave early, and I missed it. Never in my life seen a plane leave early from a gate for a connector. And that happened to me, I think, because they knew I was coming. Because I really do think I might be on a watch list. But uh, Thursday, I kind of finished up this crazy week. And when I travel, I don't really sleep very well. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit of like a diva with my own bed and, you know, my wife. And that's just like my little own kind of cave. And uh, so I wasn't sleeping very well. And I'm flying out of Orange County uh, Thursday morning. And I get to the airport. And they're like, oh, sorry, your plane's got a mechanical issue, which is always encouraging. Um, it can't fly right now. We've got to fix something. And, um, and so they were like, we think you're going to miss your flight. And it was the last flight out of Phoenix to get back to Boston, which was supposed to land around midnight. And I said, look, um, I'm willing to sprint. And they're like, okay, well, let's go ahead and get you on a red-eye flight, and we'll put you, you know. And I said, well, what if I make it? Because I run hard. Like, I, I'm landing. I'm sprinting. And they're like, oh, if you make it, it won't be an issue. Like, you'll be okay. So, you know, we're up in the air, and I'm checking my gate, and I'm like, A22 in Phoenix, and my other plane to Boston's A25. I'm like, oh, I got this. I'm like going to grab my bags and like, you know, make it all Olympic, like sprint-wise, and be all the same bold. And, and I'm, I mean, I'm rolling through the airport, running as fast as I can, and I see my gate, and the door is open, and I run up, and I'm like, <laughs> I made it. And they're like, oh, sorry, sir, this flight is full. I'm like, no, 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 no. I have a seat. They're like, um, no, sir, we gave your seat away. I'm like, well, that's okay. You just asked them to move. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay. And they're like, um, sorry, sir, we're going to have to stick a fork in this plane. It's done. And I was like, did you really just say that to me? And this is all kind of what's happening internally. He said, but don't worry, sir, you have that red-eye flight tonight. Your seat is confirmed. And um, I, don't, I don't know about you on red-eye flights, but um, they're red-eyes for me. I don't sleep. I'm just kind of miserable. And I, I go to the counter, and I'm like, can you please, like, help me out? And they're like, sorry, with the storm coming in, uh, a lot of the southeast has been shut down. And thousands of flights are being canceled. And quite honestly, if you don't get on this plane tonight, there's a chance if, um, if you try to wait till tomorrow, you may be stuck. And we can't guarantee you're going to get to Boston. So I said, okay, fine. So I spend about nine hours stranded at Phoenix Airport. And, um, and so I'm just kind of waiting and, you know, like, you're kind of starting to feel like the, like the little band comes out with the tiny violins in your head that start to want to play because you're like poor pitiful you and you ran really hard and some like suckers on a plane above America like laughing and maniacally in your seat because he took it from you or she took it from you. And, and, and then um, I finally make it, um, I'm like laying kind of just half conscious and they finally board our flight and I walk out. And I sit in on, on my seat, and I have an aisle seat, so I'm like, okay, maybe I can stretch out. And then, um, you know, I'm a big dude. So about this time, I'm like sizing up. I've got to be honest. I'm sizing up every person walking down the aisle. I'm like, mm, okay, I'm okay with that, not okay with that, okay with that, not okay with that, really not okay with that. And the really not okay with that sits beside me. And um, there's already another large guy like me on the other side. And so now we're just this big, massive man. Um, across three seats. And I say massive man because like his body has become one with my body. And I, I try to lean out into the aisle and I keep getting hit by people. And, um, and then we take off and then I keep getting hit by stewardesses. And, and, and the massive man that is attached to me falls asleep. And, uh, but it's got this weird thing. Like, so our legs are pressed really tight up against, I don't know about you, but I do not like people pressed up tight against me, specifically people I do not know. And, and so the entire time his leg is twitching, just twitching. 
twitching. And it means my leg is twitching because our legs have become one. And for five hours, his body and my body are moving as one. And he's sleeping. And every time I try to lean over, I get hit. And so I have to reposition, and I start twitching even more. And I'm in this constant dance for five hours, finally land in Boston, have not slept. I've, I was coming off West Coast time, so I've been up for way too long at this point. And it's just like mind-numbing. And fortunately, what prevented me in the midst of that five-hour flight from going all meet the parents, you remember that scene, right, where he's just done, and he walks on to the plane, and he's trying to get his bag in, and the stewardess is like, sir, let me get that bag for you. And he's like... And it's not like it's a bomb. And she's like, sir, you can't say bomb. He's like, bomb, 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 bomb. And then he ends up being dragged off the plane. Like, I have to be honest. There was a point in that, that deal where I might have opted for that route. But what kept me sane the entire time, what kept me collected through all of that ordeal was a guardrail. A guardrail that I put into my life a long time ago. After walking through a really difficult season of dealing with anxiety and panic attacks, Guardrails that literally saved my life then, that bore fruit this week. And it was one of those reminders that I was going to talk about something different this week. And I was like, you know what? Instead of me talking about another guardrail, let me just talk about the one I used this week. One that I imagine in conversations I have with a lot of people is one that most of us have never even thought about installing. Guardrails that would fit inside of our mind that actually help our thought life. Because our thought life has powerful implications to our everyday life. And, and in the midst of all of that insanity with the, the one man, right? In the midst of all of that, at no point did I ever lose control. I had peace of mind. Now, I was one large piece, but I was at peace through the, through the entire ordeal. And the reason why is were these mental guardrails. And, and I know that for us, if we're going to experience, like I said, a life of better decisions and fewer regrets, it comes from these mental guardrails being placed in our life. And I want to look at one piece of advice, this one verse that's written in a letter almost 2,000 years ago that, that greatly impacted my life, that helped me to install these guardrails that I believe that can show you and I how we can be become more aware and actively direct our thought life. Because if we're going to live lives of better decisions and few regrets, it begins with guardrails installed up here. And so the passage I want to jump into is written in a letter to the church in Philippi. And um, it's traditionally known as the book of Philippians. And that's why it's called the book of Philippians, because it's written to a church in a region, in a city called Philippi in the ancient Middle East. And this is a really important church because this is a church that the author, Paul, the apostle, really cared deeply about. Now, maybe you've grown up in church, or maybe you're new to the church experience, but you've heard maybe the Apostle Paul before. I'm going to tell you a little bit what Apostle means. That was not his first name. Apostle was someone, that the literal meaning is sent, but Apostle was an entrepreneur. It was someone who started things. He was a serial entrepreneur in that he was constantly starting new things. He was very educated. He was trilingual. He's considered to be one of the most brilliant scholars in Christian history and would have been probably one of the most brilliant scholars in Jewish history had he not become a Christian. And he writes this letter to a church that he has started because that's what the Apostle Paul did. When he became a Christian, he, he wanted to make sure that Christianity spread this hope, this love, this grace, this forgiveness that Jesus brings. He he made it his life mission to travel to new places that had never heard of Jesus, that had never experienced Christianity, and he would set up new churches. And that's why today we call him the Apostle Paul. But as you can imagine, someone who spends his time telling people about things they've never heard of faced quite regularly opposition and pressure. Human beings don't like to change, do we? And so someone who came into these places talking about how to change typically wasn't received very well. And so Paul, as he would go into cities, would oftentimes find success, but he would also find pushback. And sometimes that pushback would lead to violence, and sometimes that pushback would lead to prison. And Paul is in a prison at the very time he's writing this letter. He's been arrested because he's an apostle trying to spread Christianity. And Christianity in the Roman Empire is illegal. 
It violates one of the core beliefs that Caesar was, in fact, the only God and that ultimate allegiance belonged to the Caesar. And Christianity said ultimate allegiance belonged to God, which is where the tension point was. And so here's Paul in prison, and he writes this letter to a church he started 12 years before, and it's a church that he dearly loved. It was people that he dearly loved. They, they were an extraordinary group of individuals. There were no conflict. There was impact in their community. But because of their impact in their community, they were starting to have pushback. And they were starting to suffer some of the same persecution, some of the same oppression, some of the same pushback that Paul had experienced 12 years ago. And so he writes the book of Philippians. And at the end of the book, as he's wrapping up, he wants to give them some information. Information that can be life-changing for them. Information that he, in fact, is demonstrating by the mere writing of the letter. It's in Philippians 4.8. And if, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians 4.8. It's in the New Testament about, about halfway through. Or if you have the Encounter Church app, you can click on message notes and it's already there. It's one verse, but this verse is loaded. It says, finally, because he's wrapping up, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And he goes on in verse 9, we don't have time to get into it, it talks about how the peace of God will, will rule in your life. But he mentions in passing, as he's wrapping up this letter, he's like, oh, I need to give them one more piece of advice. This is critical. This is advice that Paul himself is literally embodying as he's writing this letter that's upbeat, that's encouraging. All the while, we know Paul has already alluded early in this letter that he's concerned this may be one of the last letters he ever writes. Paul recognizes that this prison sentence he's currently facing may lead to his death. And he acknowledges that, but at the same time is so intentional about encouraging the people in Philippi through this letter. And what he does is, in the midst of this one simple verse, I think he gives us a framework that's really helpful. Some of the framework's implicit, that he gives them a list of characteristics, right? He says what's true, noble, right, pure, um, lovely, admirable. He, he gives them a series of characteristics that he says should reflect their quality of thought. He's like, this should define your thought life. And what he does in the midst of listing those definitions and defining clearly kind of what the qualities of their thought life is, is supposed to look like, he actually forces them to become aware of their current thought life. You see, the first key guardrail, that if we're going to install these mental guardrails, we actually have to become aware of our thoughts, which is a strange thing, right? If you want to sound smart, you're like, I've been thinking about my thoughts recently. Like, thinking about your thoughts sounds profoundly deep, but oftentimes what Paul's pointing out is just by saying this is what our thought life should look like, it, pull, it pulls us to have attention to what's actually going on upstairs. Most of us treat our thoughts the way a fish treats water. We're not really aware of what's happening up there. We kind of go through the course of our day, and things swim through, things pass by, and we're not really cognizant of them. We just react to them. We just roll with them. We flow with them. We're not paying attention to them. And Paul's essentially, when he's listing all these characteristics, he says, I want to plug a loudspeaker into your mind and let it broadcast loud enough for you to catch it, which is kind of a terrifying thought, right? Would you want a loudspeaker attached to your mind so that you went through the day, people could hear what you're thinking? It'd probably be a little scary. I don't know if any of us would be comfortable. But this is what Paul's trying to do. He wants them to become aware of what's happening up there so that by beginning to pay attention, they might do something about it. And Paul encourages them ultimately to this really critical point of, of realization that you have to be cognizant of what's happening on the inside. Your inner life will ultimately affect your outer life. That most of the things that, most of the regrets that we have, most of the choices and the relationships that we found ourselves in, started with a thought. Some of our best ideas and some of our worst ideas, some of the best things in our life, some of the worst things in our life, all began with a simple thought that bubbled up and happened. And he says, what's pure, what's noble, what's right, what's lovely, and he begins to list all these things, and he says, I want you to pay I want you to pay attention to what's happening up there. 
And what Paul's hitting on over 2,000, almost 2,000 years ago is actually something that modern research is, is starting to, to document. That there's probably in your own family life, but there's been extensive studies done. Why do some people go through the exact same circumstance? And one ends up okay, and the other one is forever damaged by it. How do some people go through struggles and trials? How do some people experience the exact same moment and yet come to two different conclusions? Have you ever had that happen? Maybe even in your own house, you have the same conversation and yet two different outcomes. And yet, what modern research has proven and what Paul is alluding to is that only about 10% of the external has an impact. 90% of our response to any circumstance is all in what happens up here. 90% of what we experience, how we respond, has 90% of it is up here. And what we do with our thoughts and how we guide our thoughts or how our thoughts guide us. And that's why two people can walk through the exact same experience. And one come out this way and the other one come out this way because only 10% of the impact is felt in the actual experience. 90% is what they're thinking. And because of their different thoughts, they go to different places. And Paul's saying, I want you to become aware. I want you to focus. And so what happens is when you begin to focus on what's noble, what's true, what's right, what's lovely, what's admirable, what's pure, what starts to happen is as you start to list those qualities, because maybe no one's ever asked you to think about your thoughts before. What happens when you have this standard and you start to listen You realize that many of us, if we're not careful, our thoughts are focused on our past, right? Past regrets, past conversations, hurtful words that have been said to us, breakdowns in our own life, breakups, right? Hurts, these hang-ups that we still have with people that aren't even present in our life anymore. These bad thought habits that just kind of flow through our mind where we tend to nurse grievances. Like, how dare they did that to me? I can't believe that. I can't wait to catch up to them. You know, it's like this, these, these bad thought habits or the what-if scenarios, you know, where you're just kind of playing all the what-ifs or what could have been or what should have been or maybe anxiety and worry that just kind of grab hold of your brain and all you can think about are all the things that could go wrong and just keeps you up at night. Right? Those bad thought habits that start to grab hold of us to a certain point that we become exhausted. Have you ever been mentally exhausted? It's the worst, isn't it? It's one thing to be physically exhausted because you can lay down and fall asleep, but when you're mentally exhausted, you're stuck. It's like being held hostage in your own body. And what happens is when we live in a place where we're, we're not being aware of our thought life and we begin to be held mentally hostage, is we start looking for places of escape. And we start fantasizing. And we start letting our mind go to places on new relationships that's better than the one we're in. Or a new job that's better than the one we're in. Or quite honestly, sometimes a new kid that we wish we could replace. And we start to let our minds take us to places and spaces where we start to feel better and we comfort ourselves on these really depleting thought habits. And, and Paul says, look, you've got to be aware of what the quality and standard of a healthy thought life is so that you can start to pay attention to the unhealthy habits that are happening upstairs. And that's how we start to become aware. Very practically speaking, um, my wife actually said this to me. She was like, you're weird. I was like, I'm aware of that. She was like, you think about your thoughts. Like, people don't do that. She's like, you, you actually think about your thoughts every single moment of every single day. Like, that's just not normal. She's like, you probably should tell people how they actually should think about their thoughts. I'm like, people don't think about their thoughts? Like, really? And, and she's, no, you're weird. And so here's how you think about your thoughts. Here's, because there was a point in my life where I didn't actively think about my thoughts. Um, and what has become a, a discipline for me can become a discipline for you. One of it's really simple. Just this week, give it seven days. Set a calendar reminder. If you have, if you have an iPhone, tell Siri to remind you at 5 p.m. Because a great time 
to start engaging and becoming aware of your thoughts is if you have a morning commute or an afternoon commute. You ever notice your brain just kind of activates? Man, any kind of unhealthy habits in your mind are going to come start flooding in in that moment. Getting home, what I'm about to step into, the stress, the pressures. And many of us, we step into our car and we go complete autopilot. We've driven the ride, we've taken the train so many times we don't even think about it. And yet, if we're willing to set a reminder, hey, when I get to my car at 5.30 p.m., remind me to pay attention to my thoughts on the way home. That's just a really simple way. Or maybe if you're one of those people who likes journaling in the morning to, to say, here's what I want to think about today. Or here's what I thought about during the day if you want to journal at night. And you don't have to write a book. You just write a couple paragraphs. What it does is it starts to train you, like Paul is saying, to become aware of what's happening up there. Maybe you could even print or memorize this verse um, that, and just put it on your dashboard, you know, like when old school and you what's up, you know, and you're dating that person, there are little pictures there, maybe that was just me and I'm weird, and you're driving and you want to, I want to just think about you, girl, right, and because the picture's right there, um, and, and, and so, like, maybe it's just you put the verse on your dashboard, and it's just a reminder to pay attention to, to your mental dashboard of what's happening. Is it pure? Is it noble? Is it lovely? Is it admirable? Is it right? But by doing this, we start to develop this habit of becoming aware. But Paul doesn't end there. He, he says we're not just to become aware. He actually tells them that we're to be active in directing our thoughts, right? He says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, which is a kind of a summary statement, think about such things. He's like, think about these things. And when he tells us to think about them and his instruction, he's actually demonstrating to us that it's possible. It's actually possible to direct your thinking. Like for me, I remember the point in season of coming out of my struggle with this anxiety disorder and having this profound understanding, this profound realization that I can actually direct my thoughts. For years, for two decades, I had become convinced that I can reason away my bad thoughts. I don't know about you. Have you ever tried to argue with your thoughts? And I got into the pattern. That, that's how I dealt with it. I would argue with it, or I would nurse it, or I'd be like, yeah, you're right. That is how they are. That is what they deserve. And here's the thing. You don't reason with a bad thought. You replace it. That's why Paul says, whatever is true, you got to lie, stick a truth in there. Whatever's noble, you got something ignoble happening, put something noble in there. Because in the midst of all this conversation and all of this, like, kind of hoopla around this idea that you and I can be multitaskers and think multiple thoughts. The human brain is not capable of having multiple thoughts simultaneously. You can only have one thought at a time. Go and look it up. And we don't reason with the bad thoughts. We replace them. And if you and I get intentional about replacing the bad thoughts with the good thoughts, then what will start to happen is we'll start to affect the way we think. This has profound implications. That's why he tells them, think about what's excellent and praiseworthy. Because if we make it our intention to direct our thoughts to those things, to replace our thoughts with those things, then what starts to happen is our brain will literally start to shift. I think for those who are kind of regular here, you've heard me say, like, my undergrad was in biochemistry, and so, like, neurochemistry is something I still study for fun because I'm weird, and, um, and so the, the human brain is fascinating. The way you and I learn would be akin to, um, to use, like, a road analogy. When we first have a thought for the first time, maybe go back to when you were learning the multiplication table, right, and two plus, two times two Two times three, those were kind of hard things, and you could feel like your brain like struggling, and you're like laying it down. And what happens is early on in learning, you form this, this dirt path of neurons. Two times two is four, two times three is six, two times four is eight, two times five is ten. And you keep doing it. Two times two is four, two times three is six, two times, you know, and you start. And what happens is that dirt road becomes a little dirt path. And that dirt path becomes a little wider and it starts to become this one lane road that eventually, over time, as you learn, as you internalize, as you practice, as you grow, and this happens in your current, like wherever you are workforce wise, what starts to happen is that you eventually have a super highway. Your neurons are so fast and so efficient, they fire and there's boom, boom, they, they've got the path laid out. Because the way you think literally starts to shape your brain. 
which is both encouraging and terrifying, which means for some of us, we have bad thinking habits. And we're, we spent years building that superhighway, and it's not going to go away overnight. And what, what that means is that we have to start cutting a dirt path over here. We start having to intentionally cut a little bit larger dirt path and a little bit larger, and eventually that thing becomes a superhighway, but it takes time. And that's why many of you, when you were young, you, you kind of developed this habit of worry and anxiety, and it's gotten, it's gotten stronger and more powerful as you've gotten older. You notice that? Like, I remember vividly, this is a lot of where my anxiety rooted in. Um, my father died when I was young, or at least the guy I thought was my father. That's a whole soap opera story later. Um, but, I mean, my earliest, some of my earliest memories were, were like, afraid of losing my mom because I already lost my dad. And I would lay in bed. I mean, this is so crazy how, how I can remember this, but this was this little dirt path I was cutting through. I'd lay in my bed at night, and I would be like, man, God, if you're real, please don't take my mom because she's all I got. And this is me as a little five-year-old. And I'm just laying that path, cutting that road. And some of you have been through divorce. Some of you have lost a parent. Some of you experienced those things as a small child, and you know what I'm talking about. Where you start to kind of carve out that path. Or you grew up in a household where you were told, you were pressed, you were pushed that you're going to perform this way. And so you internalize that. Man, you cut that little path. And as you've gotten older, that thing has turned into a super highway. And, and I am gifted. If there was an Olympic qualifying event for anxiety or worry, I'd come in and I'd snatch that gold. Because I know how to worry. Just watch me with my daughter. I'm like, she could fall, that slide could break down, meteorite could hit, airplane could fall out the sky, there could be haunta there, there could be like botulism there. I mean, like, I am like, beep, 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 beep. My brain has got all these things flying down the road. I'm good at worrying. I'm good at being anxious. And it's because I've, I developed that habit a long time ago, and it's become this super highway. And Paul understands that you and I, if we don't direct our thoughts, our thoughts will direct us. He says, you've got to be intentional about carving out a path that is filled with excellent and praiseworthy things. And that's where, practically speaking, we have to begin to train our minds to focus on the good things in our lives. It is far easier to focus on the bad. It is far easier to focus in on all the things that are breaking down. What was happening when I'm sitting there and I've become one with three men and we're all like mass and it's just vibrating my leg. The thing that kept me together, two things, both out of this passage. One is I was focused on I, I'm almost home. Can't wait to see Jenny. I can't wait to see Ella. I'd, I'd already said, hey, we're going to get there when, when daddy gets home and we're going to go to the corn, like this huge maze down at Honeypot Hill. We're going to have an awesome time. And that's what I was consumed by, and that's what I was pressing towards, and that's what I was pushing into. That's where I kept my thoughts. The good things that was at the end of the trip, not the bad things in the midst of the trip. That's where I kept mentally going. And that's, that kept me sane through all of that insanity of just trying to get home. And it's being intentional about replacing, not rationalizing, not reasoning with the bad thoughts. And this isn't like positive thinking. I don't want you to just walk away and say, oh, Chris is encouraging me to think more positively. That's not what I'm saying. Positive thinking, like true positive thinking, psychological positive thinking, is about positively thinking something into existence. Now, I've been positively thinking I'm going to grow hair for a long time, and it has not happened. Because there are some things, it doesn't matter how many times you think those good thoughts, it does not happen. In fact, I've lost more hair in my positive thinking about growing hair. So this isn't about positive thinking. This is about purposeful thinking, which is radically different. And purposeful thinking allows you to not just walk into positive circumstances, but it also allows you to deal with negative circumstances. It even allows you to walk through grief and experience what grief is meant to do, which is to bring healing. Because when you apply purposeful thinking to grieving, instead of becoming bitter, Instead of getting called up in all the sadness and the anger that flows out of that. Purposeful thinking says, why is there grief in the first place? It's because of the way he loved me. Or the way she loved me. 
or all the positive traits in their life that brought so much richness into my life. And you focus on all the richness that is the very reason for the grief. It's the shadow that we can focus on the darkness or allow the shadow to remind us that there's sunshine. And that's what purposeful thinking does. Is it fosters this healthy way of viewing. It's where we apply it in those romantic relationship moments where we're so frustrated and instead of walking out and just thinking about other people that could be in their place, we remind ourselves of why we fell in love with them in the first place. Because I would probably wager that on the, the positives and negative list, there were probably a lot more positives than there were negatives. And you're just bumping up against the negative thing. And to remind yourself, okay, they got, they got a debit column. But they had a lot more credit going for them too. And to foster that kind of purposeful thinking is, is what Paul calls us to do. And up until this point, no matter where you are in kind of spiritual journey, no matter where you are in this faith journey, all of that can resonate and hit. But Paul gives, for those who are Christian, I think a secret weapon in this second part. He says, whatever is excellent and whatever is praiseworthy. Think about those things. I think for the Christian who's hearing his words, they recognize that praiseworthy isn't just positive and good things. Paul's referring to something specific. You see, Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi. But the way this church in Philippi starts is that when he first arrives to Philippi, he's starting to gain traction and he finds himself thrown in jail. Let me read that account. He's arrested. The crowds join in the attack. The, the crowds start to beat him. Then he's arrested, and the magistrate, the judge, or, orders him to be completely stripped and then beaten with rods. He's so incredibly beaten that he is knocked out unconscious, it, experiences a kind of a trauma on his body that today would result in an emergency room ICU kind of admission. And then he's thrown in prison. And to make it even worse, the jailer's told to guard him carefully, which means that the jailer locks him in stocks around his ankles and puts him in the middle of the prison where it's the darkest, where it's the coldest, and where it's the dampest. And yet, verse 25 of Acts chapter 16, that's the travel journey of as Paul is going through starting these churches, about midnight. And the reason it's about midnight is because some hours have passed and Paul's kind of come, he's woken up. He's no longer unconscious. And what he does when he wakes up, it says that Paul and Silas, his traveling partner at the time, were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening too. When Paul says what's praiseworthy, Paul is pointing to something very distinct inside of the Christian world. He's talking about this idea of praising, this idea of worshiping. It's, it's what you've bumped up against when you've walked into this room before I got on the stage. It's why in the church, we sing music distinctly to God and about God. And it's not just because we are like a Disney movie that feels like we should have a soundtrack to what we're doing. It's because that is a critical part of our faith system. That we understand when Paul says praiseworthy, that there is somehow supernaturally... There is power when we sing to God. That there is power when we do this thing called praise or worship or whatever you would describe it as. And that's why Paul says you've got to lean into that. Because when we pray and we sing, that's the way we invite God to step in and provide supernatural strength. It's the way we ask him to come and help take over our thoughts because we're so consumed by anxiety and worry. The other thing I was doing on the plane while I was being kind of violently shaken is I had music in my ears about who he is. Reminding me of his goodness, reminding me of his love, reminding me of his mercy. Because in those moments, it's really easy to start getting, woe is me. My little violin's playing. I start throwing a pity party. And that music pulls me back to a center and reminds me that God is bigger, that God has me. It's in that weak moment where that music actually starts to lift me up. In fact, yesterday when our family was going through this large maze at the Honeypot Hill, I had a reminder of what this is meant to do to our lives and our thinking. 
You see, if you've never been to Honeypot Hill, they have the largest hedge maze in North America, which sounds really cool until you're inside of it. And the average person takes about an hour to get through. And the entire time, my, remember I'm a gifted worrier, I'm like, I really hope I don't have to pee. Like, that's, that's like all I can think about the entire time because I'm like, I, I don't even know how that goes down. Like, that's just bad. And, and so we're like wandering through. I'm not very spatially gifted. I know some of you are where you walk in and you're like, oh, that's north because you've got some kind of like weird iron in your nose and you all, you're like a pigeon that always knows where. I, I don't know that. I walk into a building. I have no clue where I am. No clue. I get lost all the time. I don't have that giftedness inside my brain. And yet in the midst of that maze, we kept having these moments where we'd come up and there would be a bridge, and we would step above the bridge, and we'd stand on top. And all of a sudden, what had been chaos and confusion on the inside where I had no clue where I was headed, I'd stand on top of the bridge, and I could see the maze in front of me. And I could see where I'd come from. And I could see enough to see where I needed to go. And I'd kind of trace out my path, and then I'd step back into the confusion. And I'd step back into the chaos, and I'd get to the next bridge. And I'd go back up on top of that, and I'd see where I came from. I'd see perspective, and I'd see where I needed to go. And when Paul calls his people, he's writing this letter to, to think excellent and praiseworthy thoughts, this is what he means when he says praiseworthy. Because when we sing songs to him and about him, I don't know how to describe it all, but I know some, something supernatural happens inside of us and around us. We're we're lifted up. We're, we're elevated. There's some buoyancy that happens inside of our soul, and we're able to get a glimpse. And we're able to be reminded. It's why some of you, even if you're not sure where you stand on this idea of faith or God or Jesus, you love the music, even though everything in you wants to hate the music. Because it's not the music that you're sensing inside giving you hope. It's Him. It's him reminding you that, hey, I'm in control. Those words, those aren't just words. It's not a Katy Perry song that doesn't make a difference. It's, it's truth that says, I love you. I'm for you. God with us. God for us. That makes a difference in the midst of our circumstance. Because I don't always feel like a firework, but I'm always, always brought hope when I'm reminded that God is in control. And so whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think about those things. And maybe you're like, I, I want to explore more about faith. I'm not sure how that wraps up, but I get there's something I've been bumping up against. And that's why we've created a life group for you. And it's in the Starting Point app. If you click on it, it says Exploring Grace and Faith. That's a group designed specifically for you just to ask some questions. And to be able to process some of the struggles that maybe you have, some of the doubts that you have, where you can say, okay, what's the deal with this Christianity thing? That's why we've carved out that class for you, that group, so people like you can process through those difficult questions. But Paul calls us to think excellent and praiseworthy thoughts because if we want a life with better decisions and fewer regrets, then we have to install these mental guardrails. Because in the end, your thoughts will either direct you or you will direct your thoughts. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your goodness, your love. Thank you for your word, the reminder that you are in control. I pray that you would help us. Some of us are stepping into struggles. Some are stepping into trials. Some of us are looking um, in the midst of all the triumphs around them. There's a sense that there's something missing, that there's got to be more. And, and we recognize that in the midst of us beginning to take intentional action with our thoughts, that we can begin to to step into that life with better decisions and fewer regrets. So I pray even in the midst of this song as we close out today that you would remind us of the power that sustained Paul in prison, that has carried your people for thousands of years through some of the best and worst circumstances of life. And may this in this moment be a time that we leave as a people more committed to installing guardrails and our minds. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. Um, we're going to teach you a new song today. Um, it's a song that was a song I was actually listening to on the plane. Um, it's a song that 
as our family is walking through a really difficult circumstance right now. It's a song that's like set on repeat. It's a song that I keep going back to, that I keep singing to myself and simultaneously singing to him. It's, it's a song called Even When It Hurts. And I realize that maybe you've never heard it before. Um, it's raw. I'm going to go ahead and introduce that. It's going to be raw. It, 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 it's not fluffy. It's not fake. It's just real. But it understands at the heart of what Paul said that, man, even when it hurts, we can praise him. Because he's worthy of praise. It's also a time that in the midst of our response that we carve out for those who call Encounter Church home to be able to kind of return back what he's given to us. We um, are a generous church. We make a difference in this community. It, we've already had funds that will be given to the Caribbean to help with disaster relief. And the reason we're able to do those kind of things, the reason we can be a part of what's happening locally, nationally, and globally is because you're a generous people. And for those who call Encounter Church home, this is how we um, practice our generosity. For those who are here and maybe exploring faith or, or just checking out Encounter Church, we have this moment so that you can take advantage of the app or, like Nick said, maybe even uh, put the connection card in the basket so that we can know how we can pray. We can know how we can step into your storyline with you and, and continue to kind of get to know you as you get to know us. Um, but whatever it is, we want to take advantage of this moment this, to, to be introduced to a new song that talks about the power of praise and to, to, be, to make a commitment to the Lord, to ourselves, that we're going to be people who put mental guardrails in to direct and protect us so that we can live a life of better decisions and fewer regrets. Your parade. 